Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our November 2012 issue. Note that you will hear a transition tone between the summaries. Let's get started. The number of lawsuits accusing pharmaceutical companies of off-label marketing has risen in recent years. The impact these lawsuits have on drug prescribing and spending is somewhat unclear because, as the authors of this article note, researchers have not examined the issue. To bring light to the topic, the authors turned to a $430 million gabapentin off-label marketing lawsuit for insight on how this trend may be affecting the industry. Their research had three goals. One, did the lawsuit and accompanying media coverage affect gabapentin market share? Two, did the lawsuit lead to substitution of other scientifically substantiated and unsubstantiated anticonvulsants? And three, did the lawsuit affect spending on anticonvulsants among Medicare and Medicaid patients diagnosed with bipolar disorder? The authors used an interrupted time series design to evaluate the impact of the lawsuit on monthly market share, utilization, and spending from 2001 to 2005. Their results indicate that the lawsuit and accompanying media coverage corresponded with a decrease in market share of gabapentin, substitution of newer and more expensive anticonvulsants, and an unintended increase in overall spending on anticonvulsants. The authors conclude that their findings support the need for further study of the effects of current lawsuits regarding off-label drug marketing. About 30% of patients with schizophrenia have comorbid obsessive-compulsive symptoms. This percentage is about 10 times higher than the rate among healthy individuals. One explanation for this high rate of co-occurrence is that obsessions and compulsions are side effects of antipsychotic medications. The development of obsessive-compulsive symptoms following the initiation of antipsychotics has been reported for all atypical antipsychotics, especially clozapine. On the other hand, obsessive-compulsive symptoms are associated with more severe psychotic symptoms and clozapine is administered to the more severely ill patients. Therefore, the association between obsessive-compulsive symptoms and clozapine might be the reflection of psychotic illness characteristics instead of a causal relationship. To complicate matters, all atypical antipsychotics are reported to alleviate obsessive-compulsive symptoms in some cases. In a large naturalistic cross-sectional study of schizophrenia patients, the investigators found that the prevalence, about 20%, of obsessive-compulsive symptoms in patients taking olanzapine or risperidone or in patients not taking antipsychotics did not differ significantly. However, 
patients taking clozapine for more than six months did have a significantly higher prevalence of obsessive-compulsive symptoms, 47%, compared to patients taking olanzapine, respiridone, or no antipsychotic. After analyses were corrected for duration of psychotic illness and the severity of the psychotic symptoms, the prevalence of obsessions and compulsions in patients taking clozapine for six months or longer remained significantly higher. Dr. Griebel and colleagues conducted four studies evaluating the efficacy and tolerability of the first non-peptide vasopressin V1B receptor antagonist, SSRI149415, in the treatment of major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. These randomized eight-week double-blind placebo-controlled trials evaluated 100 milligram and 250 milligram twice daily doses of SSRI 149415, placebo, and s 10 milligrams once daily, or paroxetine 20 milligrams once daily. Primary efficacy variables included change from baseline in total score on the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale or Hamilton Anxiety Rating Scale and the Montgomery Asberg Depression Rating Scale. Secondary variables included change in the severity of illness score on the Clinical Global Impression Scale. Additionally, a four-week double-blind placebo-controlled study was conducted to evaluate the effect of 100 milligram and 250 milligram twice daily doses of SSRI 149415 on the HPA stress axis in depressed patients. In the anxiety trial, the researchers found that SSRI 149415 did not separate from placebo on the primary and secondary outcome measures while paroxetine demonstrated efficacy. In two of the depression trials, the outcome measures for patients taking SSRI 149415 were comparable to those for patients in the placebo group. In the third depression trial, SSRI 149415 at the 250 milligram dose, but not S-citalopram, demonstrated significant improvement compared to placebo on the Hamilton Depression Scale total score at week 8. Finally, SSRI 149415 had no deleterious effects on the HPA stress axis. Results from these studies show that SSRI 149415 may not be useful for the treatment of generalized anxiety and that its antidepressant effects need to be evaluated further. Suprazidone is currently FDA-approved as monotherapy for the treatment of patients with bipolar manic or mixed episodes. In a three-week, randomized, placebo-controlled study sponsored by Pfizer, Gary Sachs and colleagues studied patients who received placebo with a mood stabilizer, lithium or Divalproex, 
or adjunctive zeprazidone at low or high dose with a mood stabilizer. Efficacy was measured as a change in the Young Mania Rating Scale score from baseline to week 3. The study failed to detect a difference between adjunctive zeprazidone and placebo for patients with inadequate response to concurrent treatment with lithium or valproate. These results are in contrast to the findings from a long-term maintenance trial for adjunctive zeprazidone with mood stabilizers in patients with mania, in which the higher-dose zeprazidone group reported longer time to relapse than the placebo group. The authors conclude that it is unlikely that high placebo response is the underlying reason for the negative results as the results from the placebo arm were minimal when compared to other adjunctive trials or other monotherapy trials. Other factors that may have contributed to this study's failure may be insufficient dosing or non-compliance with study treatment. The authors have also explored the possibility that ineligible subjects were inappropriately enrolled in the study, and they report their findings in a companion article immediately following. In part two of their companion articles, Gary Sachs and colleagues find that failure can be a great teacher. In part one, they conducted a double-blind trial examining adjunctive zeprazidone versus placebo among patients with acute mania who were experiencing inadequate response to concurrent treatment with lithium or valproate. The study failed to detect a significant difference between adjunctive zeprazidone and placebo. Ziprazidone, however, has FDA approval as monotherapy for the treatment of patients with mania or mixed episodes. Therefore, one might consider the negative or failed result obtained in that study to be unexpected. The efficacy study data included assessments administered by computer in tandem with assessments made by site-based raters. In this Pfizer-sponsored Part 2 companion study, exploratory analyses were conducted to examine the impact of three protocol-specified eligibility criteria on signal detection, defined as the difference in the benefit of adding placebo or ciprazidone. Subjects who were deemed to be eligible according to both the computer and site-based eligibility assessments tended to respond better to active treatment, but subjects considered to be ineligible according to the computer assessments tended to respond numerically better to placebo than to active medication. Among 504 subjects randomized by site-based raters, 201 did not meet DSM-4 criteria for a current manic or mixed episode. Only 180 met all three of the eligibility criteria on the basis of computer assessments. Why did the efficacy study fail? Sachs and colleagues contend that DSM, diagnosis, and other eligibility criteria can impact treatment outcome. A commentary on these companion articles by Dr. Toen provides further insight on the role of clinical trial methodology in efficacy studies. 
Tardive dyskinesia and dystonia are severe side effects of dopamine-blocking medications such as antipsychotics. Deep brain stimulation seems like a promising treatment, but little is known about the psychiatric complications of such treatment in patients with a psychiatric diagnosis. To address this research gap, a group from the Netherlands conducted a literature review that included 17 articles and 50 patients. They extracted data on the severity of the movement disorders, as rated on the Burke von Marsden dystonia rating scale, before and after deep brain stimulation. Across the studies, they found a mean improvement of 78%. Of the 50 patients, one had an exacerbation of depression and one had an exacerbation of psychosis. However, both of these episodes could also be explained by the natural course of the illnesses. The authors conclude that deep brain stimulation seems to be effective and relatively safe for patients with severe tardive dyskinesia and dystonia, and that it can be considered for use in treatment-resistant patients. The authors do advise caution in interpreting their results, since most of the data are from case reports and small trials. When patients with major depression begin an antidepressant for the first time, a subset may experience emergence or worsening of suicidal thoughts or suicidal behavior. With continued treatment, however, many of these individuals will achieve improvement or remission. Investigators wanted to explore whether the subset of patients experiencing these suicidal symptoms were also more likely to experience recurrence or worsening of these symptoms during a second treatment trial with a different antidepressant or with augmentation therapy. Dr. Perlis and colleagues used data from the STAR-D study to address this question by examining patients who did not remit with citalopram and who went on to one of several next-step treatments. They found that patients who experienced new onset or worsening of suicidal thoughts or behaviors with citalopram were four times more likely to have these symptoms recur or worsen when they started a second treatment. These symptoms occurred in patients who went on to augmentation treatment with bupropion or buspirone, as well as in those who were switched to sertraline, bupropion, or venlafaxine. These results suggest that individuals who experience emergence or worsening of suicidal thoughts or behaviors with one antidepressant may warrant closer follow-up during next-step treatment, as these symptoms may recur regardless of which modality is selected. Women with bipolar disorder can struggle with mood symptoms throughout all phases of their life cycle. The postpartum period is generally considered a time of particular vulnerability to bipolar disorder. However, there is controversy about the effect of pregnancy on the course of bipolar illness, with recent studies at tertiary care facilities reporting high rates of recurrence. A systematic review was conducted to examine the relationship between pregnancy and bipolar disorder. The authors looked at a number of aspects of the topic, including treatment during pregnancy, predictors of recurrence, and clinical presentation of the illness during pregnancy. 
The authors conclude that the existing data suggest a positive, protective effect of pregnancy on bipolar disorder. They note, however, that surprisingly little research exists on this topic and that the available data are derived from non-clinical samples, retrospective studies, and psychiatric hospitalization rate studies. Many women with bipolar disorder experience significant worsening of their mood symptoms during pregnancy and the postpartum period, most often of the depressive type. Currently, there are major efforts to identify depressive symptoms in pregnant and postpartum women, but screening for bipolar symptoms in this population has largely been ignored. In this study, which was supported in part by the Father Sean O'Sullivan Research Award, researchers investigated the usefulness of the Mood Disorders Questionnaire as a screening tool for bipolar disorder in 150 women referred for psychiatric assessment in a women's mental health program in Canada. The results show that when a modified scoring method is used, measuring the presence of seven or more bipolar symptoms without supplementary questions, the Mood Disorder Questionnaire is an excellent tool to screen for bipolar disorder in pregnant and postpartum women. The authors conclude by strongly encouraging the routine use of bipolar disorder screening tools in perinatal programs. Anorexia nervosa is a psychiatric disorder characterized by restrictive eating, low body weight, and severe bone loss. Recent data show a deleterious relationship between low circulating sodium levels and bone mass, and relative or absolute hyponatremia is a known complication of anorexia nervosa. The authors therefore hypothesized that women who have anorexia nervosa and relatively low sodium levels would have lower bone mineral density than those with higher sodium levels. The researchers measured bone mineral density and plasma sodium levels in 404 women with anorexia nervosa. Bone mineral density was then compared in women with sodium levels less than 140 millimoles per liter, which is the midpoint of the normal range, versus those with sodium levels greater than or equal to 140 millimoles per liter. Additionally, bone density was compared in women with hyponatremia, defined as sodium levels less than 135 millimoles per liter versus those without hyponatremia. Women with sodium levels less than 140 millimoles per liter had lower bone mineral density at the anterior posterior spine and total hip than did women with sodium levels of 140 millimoles per liter or higher. When age, body mass index, psychiatric drug use, and disease duration were taken into account, differences remained significant only at the spine. Hyponatremic women, that is those with sodium levels less than 135 millimoles per liter, had lower bone mineral density at the anterior posterior spine, lateral spine, and total hip as compared to women without hyponatremia. 
when age, body mass index, psychiatric drug use, and disease duration were taken into account, the differences remained significant at all sites. The investigators conclude that relative sodium deficiency may contribute to osteopenia related to anorexia nervosa. As the debate rages over legalizing marijuana, the medical community has a responsibility to understand and share the risks associated with marijuana use. Marijuana is one of the most commonly used illicit drugs and is considered by many to be safe and even therapeutic. However, recent research has shown a connection between marijuana use during adolescence and an increased risk for developing schizophrenia. Dr. Eden Evans assembled a group of international experts to discuss this connection, a conversation during which they addressed risk factors for schizophrenia, the consequences of cannabis use in general, the potency of different types of cannabis and their effects, and the overall implications of legalizing this illicit drug. Read this commentary to find out who is at the greatest risk of developing psychosis after using marijuana and to find out who you should screen for using this drug. Although researchers believe that childhood sexual abuse is associated with higher rates of adult psychiatric disorders, the data on this topic are limited. Dr. Chu extensively tested this relationship in a random sample of older adults. He analyzed data collected during 2006 and 2007 from the Adult Psychiatric Morbidity Survey in England. His objectives were to determine whether childhood sexual abuse and adult sexual revictimization were associated with specific psychiatric disorders, suicidal behavior, and mental health service use in nearly 3,500 adults aged 50 years and older. Among these middle-aged and older adults, the prevalence of childhood sexual abuse was 8%, and the rate of adult re-victimization was about 2%. Those who reported childhood sexual abuse versus those who did not were more likely to develop mixed anxiety and depression, generalized anxiety disorder, eating disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, and suicidal ideation. Those who reported adult sexual re-victimization versus those with no sexual abuse were more likely to report mixed anxiety and depression, generalized anxiety disorder, phobia, post-traumatic stress disorder, and suicidal ideation. The results suggest that the mechanisms underlying childhood sexual abuse and psychiatric disorders deserve further study, and that screening for childhood sexual abuse in older primary care patients may enable prevention or alleviation of mental disorders later in life. Although ADHD is overrepresented among substance users, it is also commonly overlooked. This oversight may have negative consequences for comorbid substance use disorder, which tends to worsen if ADHD is unaddressed. Substance users pose unique diagnostic challenges, such as problems with recall, 
increased morbidity, and incorrect diagnostic attribution of symptoms. In a study funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, a group from New York State Psychiatric Institute investigated three ADHD screening instruments among a sample of cocaine-dependent outpatients. The Wenders Utah Rating Scale, the Connors Adult ADHD Rating Scale, and the Adult ADHD Self-Report Scale, all in reference to the Connors Adult ADHD Diagnostic Interview for DSM-IV, which served as the gold standard. While all the scales were adequate, the Wenders-Utah scale outperformed the others for the broadest range of ADHD cases in terms of sensitivity. This scale may be more sensitive because it conceptualizes ADHD in a way that is not based on DSM-IV, so it may be better at catching cases that meet the proposed DSM-V criteria for ADHD. The authors encourage clinicians to use these instruments, particularly the Wenders-Utah scale, to detect ADHD in their substance-using patients. Don't miss the Practical Psychopharmacology column for November, in which Dr. Andrade points out the important interactions that certain SSRIs have with clozapine. The effects include raising clozapine levels and increasing clozapine's anticholinergic and sedative side effects. Dr. Andrade goes on to discuss possible alternative antidepressant choices for these patients. In closing, be sure to take a look at our letters and book reviews and participate in the interactive activities from our CME Institute. Join us online for all this and much, much more from the November issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites. <laughs>